With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Are you ready to take a bite out of the competition? Are you looking for ideas to make your business better? Welcome to the Core Business Show with Tim GK. Sponsored by Apple Capital Group. At the core of every successful business, you'll find people making a difference. And with each episode of The Core Business Show, we talk with those people, examine those ideas, and explore the strategies that make them special. Now, the host of The Core Business Show, Tim Jacquet. Good morning and welcome to another edition of The Core Business Show. I'm Tim Jacquet. Today, we're going to continue our series for the rest of this week. It's talking about government contracting. Uh, today, our topic is going to be is what is a IFB, RFP, or if you've even heard of RFQ. Uh, this is going to be addressed today and tomorrow. Um, give you a little bit more detail. We'll do some exercises on the show. This, again, is a rebroadcast of a workshop we presented about a year, year and a half ago. So an RFB, uh, IFB, and an RFQ. Pretty much an uh, RFP, RFP. Request for proposal, RFP. Okay, if you're looking at uh, an uh, invitation to bid, that is the IFB. And also, uh, time, sometimes you're also going to hear about request for quotation, RFQ. So we're going to address that today and tomorrow and talk about what the small differences uh, between them. There are not a lot of differences. Of course, if you say uh, invitation to bid, you, you bid for that particular pro- uh, project. If you request for a proposal, they're asking for the proposal, uh, solicitation, and sometimes they ask for a quote. So we're going to go take a station break real quick. We'll be back in a moment, and we'll go ahead and roll with the show. Thank you for listening. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. Apple Capital Group in Jacksonville, Florida, is a commercial lender that specializes in asset-based loans, equipment leasing and financing, invoice financing, commercial real estate loans, and asset-based financing in the U.S. and Canada. Apple Capital Group is a direct lender that lends on their private equity investment portfolio. 90% of most loans are decided within two hours and vendor funding within 24 hours after documents are completed with a one-page application. No slow no's, just a quick decision and a fast yes. To get more information about lending from Apple Capital Group, call 866-611-7457. That's 866-611-7457 to speak with one of our loan specialists. Or visit us right now at applecapitalgroup.com. Welcome back to The Core. Once again, here's Tim Jacquet.
So, the imitation for bid. We're going to go through the first IFB, uh, which was for the Navy and Everett Washington, block by block. We're going to show you some of the places where you could stumble. And as always with any document that you send in any bid, any proposal, always double check it. So, with that, I'm going to put the, put the cursor down. I'm going to pull up a seat, pull up my copy, and let's go to work. So go ahead and open your IFB exercise book. Case study one. Now before we go through this, does anybody remember the, uh, the strategy for reading a bid from yesterday, what it's called? CLM. Right, CLM. Very good. So what we're going to do is we're going to talk about how the CLM strategy applies to these bids. So the first one was a Navy solicitation I found from uh, NAVFAC, another uh, acronym, Naval Facility Engineering Command up in Everett, Washington. It was a small business set-aside, which means only small businesses were allowed to uh, submit a proposal for this. It was an RFQ. RFQ and IFBs are very similar because they, uh, they want a price. And what they wanted to do is change out an LS2, a lift station 2 pump. Now, for the people that do pumping and plumbing, that would be, you know, something that, oh, yeah, I know what that is. You know, I had no idea. So uh, I knew it fit the format, so I had, to, uh, I had to learn about it. It was pretty interesting. They specifically talked about what the scope of work is in the, uh, in the C section. And I put some of that in the, uh, in the front with a few notes also. It says, each section down... Uh, the next to the last paragraph, it says, each section of the scope of work needs to be addressed when developing the bid. The work needs to be completed within three days of beginning the demolition and replacement. So as I said yesterday on time of delivery, that's something you need to know. If the government has a specific time frame for delivery, and even though you have the best product or the best services out there, but you can't fit that time frame, you either have to adjust your production schedule, adjust what you do, or not bid. Because production schedule is a key point in any solicitation. So this one, you've got three days to do the entire project. You know, how are you going to ramp up for that? That has to be included in the bid. Are you going to have to have extra people? Are you going to have to have extra equipment? Are you going to have to you know, shut down some other project for a couple days? You know, so all these factors go into your bid. There's an option for submitting questions via an RFI. Now, we heard the term RFI yesterday. This is actually included now in this bid package to get questions answered. And they specifically say in the bid packages, and as we'll see in a minute, that they need to be submitted by fax. Well, right there, what that tells me is I... You know, I can't call the contracting officer or send him an email. It, uh, you know, it's not according to their specifications. Next page on page two. As I said, normally in section L of the solicitation under the instructions, that's where the notice of the site visit is. However, in this one, as we'll see, it was right in section B. You know, the government is not required to follow the format exactly. That's the norm, but always read through the entire bid package 
and scan it. This is a very important note. They are going to have one site visit. It was on February 21st at 10 a.m., and the note says the contractors planning to attend are responsible for ensuring they are on the base access list in according with the instructions contained in the scope of work. So, you now with 9-11, with higher security, you've got to give yourself some time. You can't just show up at the base and expect to get on. One other suggestion when you're going to get on base, and I learned this the hard way, make sure in your vehicle you have your driver's license, your registration, and your proof of insurance. And make sure all three of those are current. I was going to a, uh, it was an expo, a trade show out on uh, Fort Irwin in California. Anybody know where Fort Irwin is? Middle of nowhere. You go to Barstow, and then you drive 35 miles out in the middle of the desert, and there is nothing by Fort Irwin. I got to the gate and uh, walked in to get my pass. My registration had expired. DMV, for some reason, hadn't sent me a note, and, you know, I depended on them to remind me, and that was my fault. But So here I was, 35 miles out in the middle of nowhere with expired tags. And I had to drive all the way back to Barstow. I had to fight with California Department of Motor Vehicles. I had to get my tags, and I had to drive all the way back out to, uh, out to Fort Irwin. So it cost me like two hours. Oh. I have seen people refuse base access because they don't have an insurance card or their insurance card isn't up to date. So three things when you go get ready to go on base. Driver's license, proof of insurance, and registration. And make sure they're all up to date. So on the notes, the, uh, the wages paid to the worker are in accordance with Davis-Bacon. What you're going to see in a lot of bid packages, there are two wage laws that the government goes by predominantly. One of them is Davis-Bacon, that's for construction. One of them is what's called Service Contract Act, and that's where the service industries. Those will be either included in full in the solicitation, or they'll be included by reference. But what, the, what they say, they show what the wage grades are and the wage rates that you are required to pay anyone working on that contract. So it's Davis-Bacon for Construction, Service Contract Act, or SCA, for service jobs. Final note I've got on there, it says clauses are sometimes shown as incorporated by reference. They will talk about a FAR clause, and that's why we did a lot about the FARs. They will show a FAR clause, and they won't show you the whole thing. They'll just show you the name of it but you are responsible for knowing every single one of those clauses or knowing the essence of them and knowing why they're in that contract because they are a part of the formal contract. So anything incorporated by reference, if you're not sure what it is, go look it up. And you can just go, there's about four ways to get to the uh, primary FAR site. Just go into Google or Yahoo or whatever search engine you use Type in the capital letters F-A-R. It'll take you right to that site and then bookmark it. It's the easiest way to get there. Okay, page three. 
This is the actual description, and I took you in the Navy site yesterday at lunch. This is the actual description that was up on the, uh, on the Navy ESOL site. Tells a solicitation number, uh, and also speaking about solicitation numbers, in your, re in your resource manual, it shows you how to read one of those. Because the first part of the solicitation the number, the N44255, is the buying activity. The 06 is the uh, year. A bid that has T or B is a bid. P is a proposal. So your resource manual has the entire list. There, I think there's seven designations of the different kinds of uh, identifier. And then the last four digits are the actual bid number. So. Each solicitation number is coded. It shows you the title, the location, when it was issued, the due date. This due date actually has a time on it, 4 o'clock. A lot of due dates say, you know, due... March 7th by close of business. And that is close of business at their office, not yours. You know, because working across the country, close of business uh, East Coast time is not the same as your close of business West Coast time or Mountain time. I've, I've actually seen people protest a bid because they tried to submit it and it was after hours. They said, well, I'm still open. It's closed business, the buying activity. Okay, let's turn over to page five, the cover page. This is the one of the cover pages that we have on your uh, your CD. Uh, there's standard form 18, standard form 1449, standard form 33. Uh, there's quite a few of them. Some of them are only for a quotation. Some of them actually have a uh, an award capability, it can be a, uh, an order and an award. Or you can put in your offer, and there's a block on there for award. This one is simply an offer. Block one, again, shows the uh, request number. Two was when it was issued. Three is their internal purchase request number. Four is the rating. Ratings are primarily, and correct me if I'm wrong, Jim, ratings are primarily for those goods and services that are more for war zone. There's no rating. There's no rating. There's a, uh, a DO rating and a DX rating. And a DX rating is like expedited delivery. So if something gets a DX rating and it goes to a factory, for example, the factory knows that that order gets first priority. So it's not something that you really have a lot of exposure to. Unless you're dealing quite a bit with, uh, you know, with war zone type uh, type goods or services. Block number five is who the ordering agency is, and a lot of times you'll see the ordering agency as a. Uh, this one was Naval Facilities uh, Engineering Command Northwest, and they handle quite a large area. So sometimes the ordering office is not going to be specifically where the job is. 
5B is the person who actually put this out, John Gerber. John was a really nice guy to talk to when I called him. I called him and I talked to him about this bid and a few others. And very open about information. These people, as we've said over the last couple of days, government buyers are not, uh, you know, not people that sit up in their ivory towers and refuse to take your calls. <clears throat> Block six on this form is deliver by. That will show you what your deliver dates are. And in this case, it references you into the actual solicitation. It says see schedule. Seven, everybody knows what FOB is? Free on board. It talks about freight. FOB is, um, are you going to pay the freight or is, uh, uh, is the government going to pay the freight? With services, that doesn't apply. That has to be worked into your bid. But if you're shipping goods, for example, if you're shipping parts, you know, is it FOB origin, which is where they start, and then the freight's added on, or is it FOB destination? which is you pay the freight. Let's see, block eight. In the olden days, at least seven or eight years ago, they used to send solicitations out in hard copy. And so what they would do is they would actually fill in your name in block eight. And that's how, if you've heard the, ever heard the terminology solicitation mailing list, that's how they got the the old solicitation mailing list. And so that's why Block 8 is still on there. They don't use it anymore because everything's done electronically, but it's still on the form. Nine is where is it going to be delivered to? And here again, that's in the schedule. Ten, please furnish quotations to the issuing office in Block 5A on or before close of business on and they give you the due date. Watch that very closely. No. Now, even if the bid does not say it, what I suggest is on the outside of the envelope that you send, put the bid number, the person's name, who it's going to, and the due date. And I put those, you know, you get those UPS labels that you print out and you put on the packages. There's a big block right underneath there. I write in red, big red letters, that information on every bid. Because that way, if the mailroom gets it, the shipping clerk gets it, here's some big red letters that says, okay, this is a bid. I better not open this. Or, you know, if it goes to somebody else, you know, if you just sent this package to John Gerber without any other information, when he got the package, he said, oh, it's a UPS package. I'll just open it up and see what's in it. And this is a sealed bid, so they are not supposed to open it until they sit down with all of the bids at one time and open all of them with witnesses. So, on the outside of your bid envelope, big red letters, the bid number, the bid name, and the person it's going to. Block number 11, schedules right in the middle. If they're only going to ask for one or two items, if they're only going to say, okay, ship us 20 widgets or, you know, 19 parts or uh, something very simple, they'll actually put that right there in block 11. Block number 12, discount for uh, prompt payment. Obviously, if you 
provide a prompt payment discount if uh, you want to try to get the government to pay uh, earlier. This is where you put that. Block number 13, name and address of quoter. So 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17 are where you fill in your information and you sign to submit the offer. Make sure that you sign your offer before you send it in because it's not a binding offer unless you sign it. And make sure it's an original signature. You know, because obviously you got to make copies of the bid package. You know, sometimes they'll say, okay, send in a, an original plus one. Sometimes they'll say, send in a, an original plus seven. You know, I have seen them ask for seven copies of a bid package. Sometimes it's original plus seven plus three electronic copies. You know, and that's getting into some of the more complex bids, obviously. But if you're making multiple copies of your bid package, don't sign one and then mimeograph the whole thing and send copied Xeroxed cover pages with your signature on there. Sit down and sign. I mean, I, I recommend original signatures even on the copies. Giovanna was saying that's why contracting officers retire faster than you can fill them. But a lot of times what they do, and, and uh, Dan will go into it later as far as source selection, is they will have a team that's evaluating the bid. So rather than them making the copies, they'll have you do it beforehand. So you'll be sending seven copies, and it will be for the seven members of the review team. What's fun is when you send a huge proposal in, and they require that. So then you're getting up to the uh, up to the truckload. Okay, page six. Okay, this is section B. This is the pricing section, according to the uniform contract format. Here's that note that they put in on the site visit. They're going to do one site visit, 21st February, 10 a.m. Interested parties will meet in the lobby of Building 2000. You are responsible for getting on the base access list, and they will not escort you from the front gate for purposes of the site visit. So you have to make sure you're on the base access list, and you have to get to Building 2000 by yourself, and you have to be there ready to go before 10 o'clock. So you definitely have to do some pre-planning. You know, you can, depending on what uh, base access takes, you can't get to the base at, you know, five minutes to ten and, and think you're going to zip right through the gate. Always give yourself extra time to get on the base, especially nowadays, you know, after 9-11. So the actual item they're bidding, you'll see item number, you'll see CLIN, C-L-I-N. In here sometimes that's contract line item number. They call it different things. But in Section B, they will show specifically what they want to buy. In this case, the unit, they put unit dollars. You're listening to The Core Business Show, sponsored by Apple Capital Group. But the unit here, 
I don't know why they put U.S. dollars because normally what they should do, since it's one, you know, they're looking for one complete job, they should say one job, one lot, one each. Those should have been one of the units that they put in here. Job, lot, or each. Not U.S. dollars. Flip over to page 148. This is a bid for signs. And so that's a B section where the government's saying, okay, we want 20 of these, and we want 13 of these, and we want 20 of these, and 10 of these, and so on. So that's by the each. You'll see bids and quotes put forward like that. That's much easier to look at. Yeah. But they're all pretty much the same. You see, this also has item number, supply services, quantity, each, unit price, and total. So it's the same format. They, they just use a different unit. And this is actually one of the units that probably should have been used for the first one. So, back to page 6. Now, since they only gave you one line item to bid, make sure that you bid in the format that the government's requiring. You know, don't put a complete description below with 17 cost items and categories and contingencies. Don't put any, you know, we have a 5% contingency on top of our bid. If they want a set lot each price, that's what you have to give them. You have to bid in the format that the government's asking for. Some more advanced bids as you get down the road will give you some allowances in there. But right now, if the government says they want one, bid one. You know, in this case, bid one job to replace those two pumps. Okay. Section C on page 7. This is the first of our CLM, and what do they do? They send us somewhere else. You'll find in government bid packages, they do quite a bit of that. They'll reference something somewhere else. But Section C simply goes to reference the scope of work titled Replace the LS2 Pumps. A lot of times Section C will give you, if it's a fairly simple bid, they'll give you the basic overview, they'll give you a synopsis of what the bid is. In this case, the actual scope of work is page, page 33. So in this case, what we would do, we would flip over to page 33, and this is the actual statement of work. This talks about, okay, the contract administration, project description. They want to remove the pumps, they want to install replacement pumps, and they want to test the replacement pumps. So that's a synopsis of what you're going to do. Project location, they tell you exactly where it is. Base access. Now here they give you some of the information on what the rules and regulations for base access are. The next page, page 34, they talk about processes for base access. If it's a one-time visit. Okay. Now right here you know that they used a boilerplate because it says one-time visit on the top of page 34. For one-time base access visits, such as pre-bid site visit, contact the base access sponsor. Yeah. But if you remember back, 
in the note in section B, it said that the ordering activity wasn't going to be responsible for getting you to the site visit. Okay? You're on your own for getting there. That's why I say this is probably boilerplate that they pulled from a solicitation. Okay? A lot of times they'll pull stuff and you will find, you'll find discrepancies. Now, if it's a serious enough discrepancy in a solicitation, make sure that you ask questions. You have a request for information form in here. Never assume in a bid package. Never, ever assume. If you have a question, if there's a discrepancy, especially in the scope of work, send a question. If they allow... Um, if they allow it by email, send them an email. If they have an RFI, a request for information form, or a question form, send that in. I mean, questions are, questions are a normal part of the process. They expect that. Diego Garcia, that big Navy bid from Diego Garcia, I think there were like a thousand questions over the space of uh, a couple months that people had. But if there's a discrepancy that you see or something that's not clear, submit a question. And in fact, right down below there, you'll see that the base access sponsor information on paragraph B is Jack Schaefer. And they go on through, they talk about the pre-quote site visit, and there again, they reference somewhere else in the solicitation. Visitors are required to submit personal information as outlined in paragraph 1.3. Uh, documents and drawings, they talk about the actual solicitation documents and drawings that are, that are included in here, and they do have, they do have some, uh, some drawings for the, uh, for the pumps that are going to be replaced. Sometimes on drawings, they will send you to a technical library. So watch for that. They will give you another link to go if it's, you know, some very either intricate drawings or if they're, uh, if they're technical drawings where they have them in a library. It's a standard design that they've got in place. They'll just say, okay, go to technical library X, pull it up. Uh, sometimes on technical documents and uh, and drawings you will have even have to download one of their uh, one of their viewers so but then again if you have a question on that ask you know the uh, the contracting officers are very used to that and they're 99.9% .9 of the time you know very glad to help okay page 35 paragraph 1.5 this is where they say Request for information, RFI document A. This form is going to be used to request information prior to submitting your quote. And they give you, they say that all RFIs are to be faxed directly to the contracting officer. That's pretty straightforward. So what they're saying there is, don't call the contracting officer and try to get a question answered. I'll just send it in. Now, they do have in here a uh, requirement for a post-award conference. If you are the awardee, the government's going to sit down with you and say, okay, let's, uh, let's talk nuts and bolts. Let's talk what is going to happen. And they'll sit down and you'll, uh, 
you'll talk about the uh, the rules, the regulations, the scheduling, submittals, partnering, safety, and so on. 1.7 go on the next page goes into the actual contractor requirements, responsibilities. Uh, 1.8 into safety, 1.9 into submittals, and you see on 1.9 they have bold and underlined. They do that for a reason. Definitely bring that to your attention. At a minimum, the following administrative submittals furnished by the contractor are required to be delivered to and approved by the government prior to commencement of work. And then they reiterate it. No work will commence without the approval of these submittals. So pretty much what they're saying is, this is a list of stuff that you need to put together and submit and have the government approve before you get going. My little small business up in New York, when we, uh, when we won the bid for, uh, for West Point for him, there was a list of submittals that was about this long. Work plans, monthly work plans, quality control plans, safety plans, employee rosters, licenses. And we were going around the clock for a couple weeks, putting all this stuff together, getting it approved before we could start working. You know, because these were things that the government said had to be submitted and approved in place before the work started. So if you see that, I mean, start, uh, if you can, start putting some of that stuff together beforehand. You know, some stuff that they ask for should probably, you know, like safety plans, employee rosters, you know, uh, company policies and procedures. Some of that stuff may already be the documentation that you have for the company. But if you can do any advance work, you know, definitely do that. Part two of this on page 37 is the actual work. This is actually what you're going to be doing. The work description, uh, furnishing everything for the uh, replacement of the pumps, the scope of work, and we've heard the terminology SOW before, scope of work. The actual scope of work is only page 37, 38. After the scope of work on page 38, then they go into a lot of the general requirements. Sometimes general requirements will be before the scope, sometimes it's after. But the general requirements talks about all of the overall aspects of the contract that you need to understand. The uh, restrictions on work. What time can you work? I mean, if your crew normally works 9 to 6, it says right here, work shall be performed, and there it again, shall. Work shall be performed between 7.30 and 4. Oh, so these are the general contractual requirements that you have to comply by. Um, access to the buildings and the work site shall be coordinated 24 hours in advance. And there's the big one that we talked about. Work within the lift station shall be complete within three days of beginning of the demolition. So they'll talk about the actual time frames you have in there. Lay down area where you're going to be doing your construction, 
the cleanup, additional requirements, safety, equipment identification, station regs, interruption of traffic. A lot of the regulations you see in the general requirements will be base type regulations. Safety, security, uh, interference with the uh, facility. It's all important. Even though it's standard stuff that's in every contract, it is a part of your contract. You are on a military installation in a case like this, and you need to follow all their rules and regulations and parking requirements and cell phone usage requirements, even though they didn't put it in here. You know, so on uh, page 39.33, paragraph C, they don't talk about cell phones. But they say ensure that the contract personnel employed on the contract become familiar with and obey station regulations. So you are responsible. They continue on on uh, page 40 through the, uh, the requirements. On page 41, you'll see the RFI form. That's how you submit your questions. That would be how you submit your questions in this case. In some cases, they will say... Um, if there is a site visit, you'll hear it at the site visit. You'll also see it on the forums and the paperwork that no question answered verbally will become a binding part of the contract until committed to writing and submitted as an amendment or something to that effect. You can ask them a question about the contract, but anything they say is not binding until it's committed to paper. If it's not written down, it didn't happen. If it's not written down, it's not a rule or a regulation. Then on page 42, they go into the activity hazard analysis worksheet, one of the other forms that are required. They follow through on that with uh, page 44. There are the drawings. There's the actual pictures of the pumps you're going to be working on. Go over to page 47, that's your base access form. And starting on page 49 is some very fantastic reading. That is your Davis-Bacon wage rate. And if you look in that entire solicitation, that part of it is Davis-Bacon. It's like 40 pages worth of the wage grades. Read through that with a fine-tooth comb. Wage determinations. You are required to also have certified payroll. And there are times when you can submit, like if you use ADP or a payroll company, they will submit a payroll report showing that you paid the wages that you are required to pay under Davis-Bacon. There have been times when I've had a client get a... Uh, government job and they have actually have to revise the wages for their people to meet Davis-Bacon or Service Contract Act. Okay, so that was Section C. Section C went over and did the scope of work. So let's turn back to page 8. You know, what's interesting is if you go to page 7, Section C, in a solicit, page 8, Section E, there is no D. In this solicitation, D does not apply. So, 
Section E, Inspection and Acceptance. This talks about how the government is going to inspect and accept your work before you get paid. In this case, the only thing that's in there is one clause incorporated by reference, which is FAR 52-246-12, Inspection of Construction. And basically what FAR 52-246-12 says, not that I have them all memorized, I just happened to look this one up, is that the government will inspect your work and accept it before you can submit payment. Now, if you also look on that clause, it says August 1996. That was the last time that clause was revised. If you see a discrepancy, make sure you always have the most current clause because FAR clauses are being revised on a regular basis. That's why even though Dan likes the hard copy, like here, I like the electronic one because the electronic one is kept, uh, kept up to date. Section F, deliveries or performance. And they say 60 days after delivery of contract. So we have two days in there. We have three days to complete the demolition. We have 60 days after the uh, delivery of the contract. You have 60 days to complete the job, but once you get on site and you start demolishing, you have three days to do the work. But they want it all done within 60 days. So sometime within that 60-day period, you've got to get out there and you've got to do the actual work, demolish the old pumps, clean up, and put the new ones in. Okay, we turn over to Section G on page 10. Contracting Officer Authority. In no event shall any understanding or agreement between the contractor and any government employee other than the contracting officer on any contract mod change order letter or verbal direction to the contractor be effective or binding upon the government. No government employee other than the contracting officer. After my client got going on West Point, there was a quality assurance evaluator, a QAE, who is the technical guy that oversees the contract and makes sure that uh, everything's being done. He'd actually worked on the contract many years ago. It was a pest control company. And about 15 years before, he had been one of the contractors on it. So he, he knew that whole contract. You know, he knew how the work should be done. And he knew how it should be staffed. He knew what you should do if the wind was five miles an hour. Or, you know, he thought he knew everything about the contract. Constant, constant clash with him because he just assumed that he knew what was going on. He told us, yeah, you need to have... X number of people on the contract. So, well, it, it does not say that in our contract. One day, out of the blue, I get a call from the client. He is, he's frantic. He says, I just got seven deficiency reports. You know, I got seven formal deficiency letters from this quality assurance guy. 
And he's like, he's, he's thinking, okay, I'm going to lose the contract, I'm going to lose my business. I'm I said, no problem, send him to me. And I had a copy of his contract. I went through every single one of them, and every single one of them was simply the attitude of this QAE. You are required to have seven people on staff at all times. You are required to have a project manager on site, on base, from eight to four. You are required to have these licenses, and you do not. Every single one of them, because I knew the contract inside and out, I went back through the contract, wasn't in there. It was just his. He just wanted it done that way. And I went back and I says, okay, Ed, I will be glad to comply if you show me where in the contract that is. Well, it should just, it should just be done that way. I would be happy to comply if you show me in the contract where it states that. Watch how it's always been done. No. So I answered every single one of them with, this is not a contractual requirement. I sent a copy to the contracting officer, and I said, because these are not a contractual requirement, I want all seven of these totally removed from the file. Because normally everything that happens with that file, if somebody burps, it goes in the contract file on a, on a longer contract. And the contracting officer had no recourse but to pull every single one of those out of there. If it's not in the contract, you're not required to do it. And the contracting officer is the only person that has authority to make a contract change, modification, or direction. Okay, guys, page 11. This is the fun one. Contract clauses. Clauses incorporated by reference. The government used to list all these. They used to spell them all out for you. And then they got smart. It says, okay, we're going to save paper. We're going to save pages. Here are all the clauses that have to be understood. Each one of these clauses is, you know, a full clause in the FAR that you need to know. Unfortunately, there's no easy way to do it to start out with. To start out with, you need to get a copy of the FAR or get the FAR online and start reading. You know, pretty much you can get an idea on a lot of these. The second one down, 52204-7, Central Contractor Registration. Kind of got an idea what you're required to do. You're required to be in the CCR. Uh, as you continue on in your government contracting processes and careers, after a while you're going to know the majority of these by heart, what, they, you know, what the essence of them is. You know, about halfway down, 52.222-26, equal opportunity. You are required to be an equal opportunity employer. All the way down, um, 52.232-23, all at one, assignment of claims. Fred's going to talk about that later on. That's in every contract where you can assign your, where you can assign your invoices to be paid quicker. 52233-3 protest after award 
if you are not the awardee, you can uh, you can protest. If you are the awardee, uh, be aware that people might protest. But the bottom line is every clause that's in here and on the next page. Section I requires reading. Enough said. But after a while, you'll you'll understand. You'll understand the clauses. You'll you'll know what they say. Uh, section I continues on through. Then they put the terms, you know, they put the actual terms that are in there written out fully. When you go over to page 18, it's no longer a FAR clause. It says NAV 5252-209-9300. This is a naval clause. The Navy has their own clauses. The Department of Defense has their own clauses. The Army has their own clauses. The Air Force has their own clauses. You know, FAA has their own clauses. A lot of agencies will have their own. GSA in the GSA schedules will have their own clauses. So you'll see the different designations. After all the FARs, then they'll show you those. Page 20, Section J is always the list of documents, exhibits, and other attachments. This is where they will put the drawings a lot of times, the technical documents. In this case, they put the scope of work. You'll see that more and more. As the scope work gets more technical, in Section C, they'll say, refer to Section J. In this case, in uh, here, they also put the Davis-Bacon. Section K is the representations, certifications, and other statements of the offer. This is where you can fill this in via ORCA. So once you fill it in via ORCA, I see, I've, I've filled this whole thing in for the small business that I... I created just to put this bid together. So this one's all filled in, but if you've done your ORCA, the only thing you have to fill in is at the very end of a uh, reps and certs. It says that you've filled in your ORCA. Okay, this is an older one, but uh, there usually there is a uh, there is a paragraph at the very end of reps and certs that says uh, those contractors who have filled in their ORCA accept all these terms and conditions except as what is shown in paragraph and they give you one block to fill in and you just put NA. So reps and search talks all about you. Are you a small business? What's your taxpayer ID number? How many employees do you have? You know, are you debarred, uh, suspended or, uh, or indicted? Section L, Instructions, Conditions, and Notices to Bidders. This is a fairly simple Section L because this is a, I wanted to do a, a, a simple uh, solicitation. A lot of times Section L will tell you if you're doing an RFP, for example, okay, we want the technical proposal, we want all the documentation, we want the pricing in one binder, we want the technical in another, we want you know, other documents in another one. They tell you specifically in Section L how to put your bid together. And if they tell you how to do it, definitely follow their format. Section L is going to give you the, uh, you know, just the instructions on how to put it all together. It says you have to have a DUNS number. Notice of the priority rating, that's where the DX and the DO were. Uh, notice the requirement for affirmative action to ensure equal employment opportunity for construction. 
They're actually telling you that they want you to try to get 7.2% minority participation and 6.9% of the total contract in uh, female, woman-owned businesses. So they're giving you some actual goals to have as subcontractors, if you use subcontractors. They talk about the site visit again in Section L, even though they did say it in Section B on the next page. Now, Section M on page 31, Evaluation Factors for Award. A lot of times they'll go through on a more, uh, more intricate one. They'll say, we are going to evaluate best value. We're going to look at past performance as more of a factor. We're going to look at your management capability. They're going to tell you in a Section M how they're going to look at your bid. In this case, you got to buy American materials because this is an actual bid. So therefore, lowest price that is the most responsible bidder who fills in all the blanks, puts the bid together properly, has the right you know, certifications, is going to win the bid. It's a low bid. So, now that was uniform contract format, A through M. The second case study is the same thing. If you turn... Actually, first of all, if you turn to page 91, that would be an interesting page for you, Dolores, because you would ask, can we get information from previous bids? On page 91, you will see this is an actual abstract of bids from a bid opening. This shows what the different people actually bid. This is what you receive when you ask for bids on a, uh, on a bid opening. And sometimes on an IFB or an RFQ, Invitation for Bidder Request for Quote, after they open the bids, they'll automatically post these. But this solicitation is also the uh, A through M format, as is Case Study 3. Let's go to Case Study 4, page 171. This one is totally out of format. It is not uniform contract format. And that's why I included it. And what I'd like you to do, home study, this is an assignment, is go through case study one, two, and three. Read through them, look at the format, use the notes you have in your training workbooks on what uniform contract format is, then when you get to case study four, you can actually go through here and you can find the elements, the required elements for bidding, even though they're not in specifically the same order. For example, I should go to page 184. Offer is required to complete the section entitled Offer representations and certifications, commercial items. Reps and certs, it's just telling you right there that that's a Section K. That's what's normally in Section K of the uniform contract format. Page 9 is your scope of work. That's normally a Section C. But 
It's not in the same format, but after you go through case study one, two, and three, you'll be able to go through case study four and see a solicitation that's totally out of the same format. You'll be able to pick up the elements. Okay, so that was the IFB exercise. Any questions? Any questions on uh, any of the sections that we looked at? Always try to make yourself the most informed bidder because if there was something, one little thing that you did on your bid that skewed it, then next time you're going to be more informed. Thank you for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. For more information about equipment financing and asset-based loans, visit our website, applecapitalgroup.com. That's applecapitalgroup.com. Or call us at 866-611-7457. We hope you'll join us for our next episode. And remember, you can always get to the core via iTunes. You'll find all our previous episodes there. And thanks again for listening to The Core Business Show with Tim Jacquet. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. ChumbaCasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.